0: You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. To the Martha Zoller Show. It's the Thursday edition. It's always great to talk to Senator John Ossoff, and he is joining us this morning. Good morning, Senator Ossoff.
1: Good morning, Martha. Thank you for having me.
0: So let's just start out with some of the issues before we get to the more fun stuff, like talking about the holidays. Um, you had in a, a really uh, chilling report that was released this week on the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, the testimony was. Uh, really horrible to hear, but needed to be heard. Tell us a little bit about what you found and what were the top lines from this report.
1: Thank you, Martha. And, yeah, I do want to warn folks, this is pretty disturbing stuff. Uh, I led an eight-month bipartisan investigation of the sexual abuse of female inmates in federal prison facilities, and uh, the findings of our investigation uh, are profoundly upsetting. We found that in more than two-thirds of all federal prisons that have housed women over the past decade, uh, federal officials have sexually assaulted female inmates. For example, uh, at FCI Dublin, uh, a prison in California, the warden and the chaplain were sexually assaulting female inmates. At FCC Coleman, a prison in Florida, multiple Federal officials uh, were abusing multiple women over an extended period, but all of those officers uh, escaped prosecution, and indeed some, despite admitting in sworn statements to raping prisoners, uh, were able to retire with benefits. This is a systemic issue across the Bureau of Prisons, and uh, this investigation revealed the scope of the crisis.
0: So what's next? Once you've revealed this, what will happen next?
1: Well, there's a new director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. You'll recall, Martha, that I led a long-term investigation of corruption and crime within U.S. Penitentiary Atlanta shortly after we released that report. Over the summer, uh, the previous director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons left his post. There's a new director of the BOP, and she has a very difficult job uh, and a formidable obligation to reform this institution to end the widespread criminal activity misconduct and abuse in federal prison facilities i've also uh... introduced and and uh... recently passed some substantial bipartisan legislation aimed at uh, reform within this institution in fact just last night the house passed my bipartisan uh... prison camera reform act to improve camera coverage within these facilities we heard from multiple formerly incarcerated women who were sexually assaulted in prison that uh, those who raped them would typically lure them into areas of the prison without camera coverage or with broken cameras. So we're working legislatively to address that. But much of this has to come from the very top of the Bureau of Prisons. It's a disease bureaucracy that needs uh, competent, focused leadership that's committed to reform.
0: You mentioned, um, you know, long-term investigations and lots of problems in certain areas. Um, certainly the VA has also been one of those places where we've needed a lot of work. Now, there's some good news related to the VA that you've led a, uh, a movement to rename the Atlanta VA after Johnny Isaacson. But I think what comes with that is a lot of responsibility because we've got some things to fix.
1: There's no doubt about that. And uh, yes, Senator Isaacson was a committed champion for Georgia's veterans. Uh, and much more important than what we name these facilities, and I have just renamed the uh, VA office in Senator Isaacson's memory, but much more important than what we name them is the quality of service that our veterans are receiving. And as you know, Martha, looking after Georgia's veterans has been among my highest priorities since I was elected. Uh, we passed bipartisan legislation to strengthen the provision of health care for Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. That was the most significant strengthening of veterans' health care in a generation. I recently introduced the Bipartisan Access for Veterans to Records Act in order to clear the backlog of service record requests from veterans who need those military service records to access their VA benefits and GI Bill benefits and are often being made to wait over a year. To secure those records. I have been deeply disappointed and, as you know, very vocal uh, about my disappointment in the performance of the VA Medical Center in Atlanta, where the wait times for service and for referral to community care have been outrageous. I brought down the Secretary of Veterans Affairs to ensure that there's very high-level attention on that issue. And, in fact, yesterday spoke with one of his top deputies and told him, excuse me, told her in no uncertain terms that we expected improvement in the year to come. And if if there weren't improvement, there would be accountability and public accountability for that.
0: Well, I know we've got a lot of work to do there. Of course, we now, I think there was a a kind of a a framework or a, a CR that was passed related to the budget to give you all another week to work on the budget. Where does the budget stand? And especially within that, where does the defense budget stand?
1: Well, my highest priority this week is getting this defense authorization done. I have been uh, working very hard on shaping the defense authorization to serve the needs of service members and military families in the state of Georgia. For example, uh, it includes a provision that I pushed for to ensure that female soldiers have body armor that fits them appropriately to keep them safe during uh, training and should they find themselves in in, uh, deployed scenarios where they're at risk. Uh, of shrapnel uh, or ballistic injury. We're working to keep open the Combat Readiness Training Center in Savannah at the Air National Guard base there, which is one of the preeminent tactical aviation training centers in the country. The president had proposed to close it. I strongly oppose the president and his proposal. We're pushing back, and I think we have a good chance of succeeding. I have fought to secure a substantial pay raise for service members. It's included now in the text of that bill, but we need to pass the bill. Uh, And um, I'm working with Senator Cornyn, my Republican colleague from Texas, on a broad increase uh, for investments in facilities upgrades. These are the barracks the childcare centers, and the training facilities at installations in Georgia and across the country that are essential for military readiness and for military quality of life. Anytime I visit a base in Georgia, I sit down with the junior enlisted personnel, the young military families I represent, and I take my cues on military quality of life from them. And consistently, I hear that the barracks are not up to standard, uh, that they want more access to higher quality child care centers. And I hear from the commanders at bases in Georgia uh, that the training facilities uh, that they uh, have on, on post are, are not up to the standard required to achieve peak military readiness. That's why Senator Corrin and I have worked to increase the funding for facilities. And that's why it's so important we pass this legislation because it's vital to our national defense we get these things done.
0: You know, I serve on the State Board of Education, and um, we had a presentation by the uh, General Cardin uh, last week about junior uh, ROTC and the military uh, testing that, that's done. And, you know, there's just so much work that needs to be done up and down the aisle uh, and up and down the framework from the beginning where a young person might be considering going into the military all the way through to the end. So I appreciate your work on that, and there's a lot of work to be done uh, on all levels. So it's it's just something that's at, always at top of mind for me. My dad was a POW in World War II, and service was a part of our family, and it still is. And so um, thank you for what you're doing with that. Um, let's talk about the budget. Just do you think it's going to get passed on time, uh, or are we going to go into this ongoing omnibus continuing resolution cycle that we're in?
1: Well, we're already late, <laughs> and yeah. uh, this is a, a point of great frustration as a, a relatively new member of the Senate just to see how how slothful the approach to getting this done has been when the stakes are very high, in particular for our national defense. I am urging at every opportunity my Democratic and Republican colleagues to achieve a compromise here that allows us to pass a responsible budget measure. Neither side is going to get everything they want, and, and we've got to stop this sort of winner-take-all fight-to-the-death mentality when our national defense is on the line. If we don't pass this budget by year's end, and you can ask uh, any unit commander in the state of Georgia, you can ask any of the service chiefs over at the Pentagon, that the consequences for national security are really significant. It hamstrings our military. Uh, and so that, that is why, by year's end, we have got to find common ground and enact a federal budget. Uh, that allows our military to engage operationally and in planning and training necessary to protect the country.
0: And, you know, I know we will we only have a few more minutes today, but next time when we get together, since you have really such expertise in investigations and has shown that just in the short time you've been in the Senate, uh, we're going to have a change of power here uh, in uh, a few weeks. And there's a lot of investigations that are being talked about on the House side, and I'd love to get your thoughts on that, not necessarily the content of the investigations, but just how you've been able to get a number of very... Uh, substantive investigations off the ground uh, and gotten Republicans to work with you on it. And so I think it's worth um, some discussion next time. We'll need a little more time to do that, but I do appreciate your work on that. Um, I want to also give a plug for your constituent services because I've had to use them not only by referring some of my listeners to you as well as uh, I've, I've used you on some personal things that I had to have done, your office, your constituent services. And I think a lot of people, the most underused part of what you do and that people don't know about is that you may be a democratic senator uh you may live in atlanta but you represent the whole state of georgia and if people need help there are resources through your office that many times people can use before they have to spend money working on a problem
1: there are and in particular for active duty service members for veterans My team is standing by to be of assistance. We help folks with the VA routinely. We help folks who are having issues with the IRS. If you're having difficulty with Social Security, Medicare, a tax refund that you're owed, anything at all, my team and I are here to serve you. And let me be really clear about this. It doesn't matter if you were for me or against me when I was a candidate. I'm for you now. I have sworn a sacred oath to serve you. I serve every community in the state of Georgia. It's not about politics whatsoever. And to your point as well, Martha, about the work I've been doing in the Senate, every single one of these investigations that I've led in the last Congress has been bipartisan has brought Republican and Democratic senators together to investigate urgent issues in the public interest. And most of the work that I do, it's not about these huge, high-profile partisan fights that play out on cable news or what's happening in the culture wars. Most of the work that I do is about providing constituent service for folks across Georgia and advancing bipartisan legislation and bipartisan oversight efforts. That's how we get results that last That's what I believe my obligation to the state is.
0: So we're coming up on the holidays, and I think this is your first holiday season with your daughter. And I know you're going to be doing all kinds of wonderful things for the first time. Uh, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah, and hope you have a wonderful holiday season.
1: Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah right back at you, and uh, the greatest blessing in my life and my wife Alicia's life has been the arrival of our baby girl, Eva. She is uh, approaching one year old on Saturday, and thank God she is in good health, and she's a happy baby, Uh, and every moment that I can spend with her, I cherish. I know that all the parents out there feel the same way. It's just an extraordinary joy.
0: I tell you, I, there, I say this to people all the time. There is nothing that prepared me for how I felt up until the time my children were born and then the moment after. I mean, it completely changes your life, and I believe it's for the better.
1: I'm with you, uh, and um, for all of the families out there preparing to celebrate Christmas with your little ones, with your grandkids, with your loved ones, uh, You know, I wish you good health, happiness, and joy in the holiday season and in the new year. And as always, I am here to help you and to serve you and to hear from you. It's Ossoff.Senate.gov. Please write in. Let me know how you feel. Let me know what you need. Let us know how we
0: can help. Senator Ossoff, thanks for being with me today.
1: Always a pleasure. Thanks, Martha. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN.
0: Jamie Wrangles joining me right now from Forward, and we're gonna talk about this framework related to DACA. And, um, you know, it's one of probably uh, the most sympathetic groups of people that there are related to illegal immigration in America. Uh, And it's something we've been talking about for a long time. And Jamie, first of all, thank you for coming in today um, or being on the program today. Uh, it is something that people need to to understand because we've been talking about this for a long time. There have been several solutions put on the table. Where are we today?
2: Well, first of all, thank you, Martha, and uh, all your, for allowing me to be here this morning, and God bless you to you and all your viewers out there. Where we are now, we're in a, in a, in a position where there's an opportunity to finally do something on DACA. Uh, recently, um, as you might have heard on the news, that... Senator Cinema and Senator Tillis of North Carolina and Arizona have uh, given a potential framework where a compromise legislation. is possible, and that forward, and not only just in a forward. For someone who is a DACA recipient myself, we're encouraged by the reported talks and the bipartisan progress that's being made right now. And listen, Martha, like you mentioned, you know the American people want solutions. The issue on DACA is, you know, people support it. And they have always supported. In fact, recent polling as of like twelve days ago, I believe, showed that overwhelmingly, including seventy percent of self identified conservatives, support Republicans and Democrats working together now on immigration reforms that strengthen the border and allow people who are brought to this country like myself, through no fall of our own to be a part of continue being a part of the American dream. That's what the American people want. And we need Congress to act now.
0: And I don't disagree with you. You and I have talked about this for a long time. There have been opportunities in the past, and I don't want to belabor the past, because the past is the past. we got a new group of players right now, and hopefully they'll do things. But, you know, whether it's DACA, whether it's codifying Roe v. Wade, whether it is um, dealing with a number of other issues that we have, there are too many people in Congress that would rather have it as an issue to talk about and to raise money off of than to actually find a solution. And until we get past that place in in our history, um, we're not going to get the work done that we need to get done. I don't disagree. I mean, I was in favor of what former President Trump put forward, where I felt like it was a great compromise, where it was money for border security in exchange for the DACA. Um, uh, the legalization of DACA kids and their parents. And, and of course, that didn't go through, and I don't want to belabor the point because it's a different administration, a different Congress. So what does this particular uh, situ- framework, as they're calling it, look like?
2: Well, we don't have anything in text so far right now, Martha. You know, they're still working out the details, so I can't really go into details on something that I have we have not seen on paper. But what I can tell your viewers is, Right now, more than any other situation that we've had in the past, as I mentioned last time I was on your show, DACA is on the real thread in the courts. We have already seen that Judge Hayden out of Texas is more than likely going to rule that DACA, um, the program itself, is on Constitution. And the pathway through the courts it does not look well. So what does that mean down the road? Well, it means that Dreamers won't be able to go to their jobs. They won't be able to go to the hospitals where they're being employed right now and helping the sick. They won't be able to go to our classrooms right now. To teach the next generation of Americans. We're looking at about you know one billion dollars being lost in the, monthly in the U.S. economy, and one thousand people being pulled out of the workforce. And that's real. That's a real problem. In Georgia, we have a twenty thousand DACA recipients in this state who have a spending power of one point three billion, contribute over one hundred million dollars in taxes, and we want these. We want uh, we want to stay in this state. We want to stay in this country. You know, I was busted to this country when I was only a toddler. I took my first steps in American soil. I grew up until this day, will stand up and pledge allegiance to the greatest flag on earth. And we need Congress to do something because there is a, a real threat. I mean, what, do, do we, you know, do we want our economy to grow stronger and for us to continue from, um, building jobs in our nation, or do we want to deport, you know, 600,000 individuals back to a country they barely even know? I think we should do what Ronald Reagan said: is protect and pass on lovingly that shining city on a shiny city on a hill. And right now we have an opportunity with this framework. I'm encouraging our U.S. senators and our, and our congressional delegation in the House to get together enough with the finger pointing. We need you to negotiate, and we need you to negotiate now.
0: So what would you like to see? If you, you don't have anything in writing, but what would you like to see?
2: I want to see something that's bipartisan, that's well negotiating, good faith efforts that will pass the U.S. Senate. We need 10 Republicans to come on board. We have, I believe, Republicans that have spoken favorably of DREAMers in the past, and I believe the votes are there. We just need our senators and our, and our Congress and D.C. to work together. We, the American people have spoken. Like I mentioned, polling has shown that over 70% so conservative, of conservatives and A.I.F. voters have supported DREAMers in the past, and they want bipartisan solutions. The American people have spoken, and we want Congress to act. So that's what I want. I want people to do the job they were elected to do.
0: Jamie Rangel from Forward.us, uh, we appreciate you being with us today and talking about this very important subject. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Martha. God
1: bless. Putting the talk in News Talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN.
3: I
2: want to just say for a second what you and what the president has done. <laughs> I mean, I can't even remember all the mnemonics of all the things that have been done. It is I'm a history teacher. It is more than any other
0: president since FDR and maybe more than FDR. So I just had to play that. It's got me all choked up because I'm just so excited. It's the Martha Zoller Show. That was Randy Weingarten, the head of the teachers union, talking with Joe Biden saying how President Biden was just the best president and he's even better than FDR. I mean, really? Come on, man. Come on, man. This is the most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard. And uh, this is what they're doing. They think because you guys uh, didn't deliver as big of a a spanking in the midterms as was expected, uh, that somehow they won. But they lost the House of Representatives. They gained a little ground in the Senate. I'm not going to deny that. And and I think the people of Pennsylvania are going to be very sorry that they put John Fetterman in this particular position because he is probably not going to last the term. And it's not going to be good for Pennsylvania. Uh, there was also, though, all across the country, there were Republicans that won in state houses in those kinds of areas, and all in all, it wasn't as good as we hoped it would be. But um, we're gonna we're gonna cause some issues. We're gonna shake some things up, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, I do think that there's some movement on a more appropriate way to get budgets done. We cannot be doing these budgets in the Senate. They have to be done in the House. And we're going to keep working on that. But I want to address something that happened yesterday and kind of spilled over into last night that I wanted to uh, uh, chat with you about. So we had uh, Jamie Rangel on from forward to talk about the DACA situation yesterday. And I've been on record for a long time uh, to say that I do believe that in the case of these DACA kids... Uh, that I don't think, I think they should be kids that were brought here. Not up to 16 years old, but kids, maybe 10 years old. There's still negotiations that need to be done. But even someone like Rush Limbaugh, if you recall about 15 years ago, a woman called into his radio show. She was 35 years old. She was originally from Columbia. She had been brought here to the United States when she was two and had lived here, and now was in danger of being deported because she came in with her illegal immigrant parents. And her, she made a very strong case. And Rush Limbaugh even agreed with her that she had been educated here. She had gone to college here. She had married, had children, had worked here, remembered nothing about her life in Columbia, had lived in the United States for uh, 33 years And now she was afraid she was going to be deported. This was when the first rumblings and people talked about something that we now call DACA. Okay, so reasonable people can look at the DACA situation without being called pro-immigrant, anti-immigrant or being pasted by the likes of D.A. King as someone that doesn't understand the immigration issue. I like D.A. I think the work he does is good, but he is so one issue oriented that he cannot have a reasonable conversation about the fact there are nuances to this issue. And so he's branded me an amnesty person on Twitter, which I don't care about Twitter. I made one response to it. I'm not going to respond to any of the rest of it. Okay, I'm not an amnesty person, although I do think a solution needs to be found for whatever we're going to define as DACA kids. And I also have asked the question a bunch of times related to the deal that former President Trump, who probably did the best job on stemming illegal immigration of any president in the last 50 years. And what Donald Trump proposed was you give us $5 billion for the wall. We'll give you all the DACA kids, which at that time that number was about 700,000, and their parents which made the number about 2200000 million. I'll do that if you'll give me that. It's called deal-making. It's called coming up with a solution that's going to work. And I do agree we need to go down a path like that. And if you're going to brand me an amnesty person because of that, fine, I'll take that. Because I don't hide from what I'm saying. I put the uh, interview out there immediately after I did it, as I always do, and... And you know what? A few people, I mean, heck, I got five times the followers that D.A. King has. And most of the people that liked these these messages don't really have any kind of amplification. But what I would say about that is if we can't come to the table and have a discussion about the nuances of this, I've also talked about fiancé visas. My nephew is going through a situation. He's now married his fiancé, but he has spent $10,000 in legal fees Trying to get his fiance back into the United States, who's now his wife, because they have to marry within 90 days. That part of the situation is true. If you get your fiance over here, you got to get married in 90 days, even if you haven't seen each other for two years. And that's the situation that my nephew found himself in. They met in graduate school. She was here on a visa. She had to go home and went home, followed her visa after. You know, she could have overstayed her visa like most of the people who were illegal immigrants, but she didn't do that. She went home and they decided they wanted to get married. And so it took him two years to get her back to the United States. And COVID played into that a little bit, too. But they had to get married within 90 days and she still doesn't have her green card. She can't drive. She can't work. And there's something wrong with a system like that. That's the legal immigration part of the system. So there's many tiers to this immigration discussion. And you can join us on the phones at 770-535-2911. Here's the Martha Zahler view of what we need to do. Okay, and if you want to call me names because of it, fine. Fine. But I'm going to tell you, this is what in my many years of looking at this, we need to do. First, we need to secure the border. And I mean both borders. Okay, because you must have a secure border. We need to get back to... Uh, not that long ago, 2020 in uh, America where we were we had less than 500 people a day coming across the border that were illegal. And now we have thousands a day. We need to secure the border. And that may not be a wall in the sense of it's a wall over 2,200 miles. Different terrains require different things. But I'm using wall in the general term that a way to deter people and to funnel people into the actual checkpoints that we have that are official checkpoints of the United States of America, number one. Number two, we do need to look and define what a DACA kid is. I don't think it's up to 16 years old because this culture that primarily uses this DACA uh, carve out uh, that that by the time kids are 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, they're acting like adults. They're dropping out of school and working to support the family. They are acting like adults. Okay, so I don't think I don't think all the way up to 16 is the right age. Maybe 10 is the right age, but I'm willing to have a debate about that. And then we need to, and I do think that President Trump was correct in saying you're probably going to have to allow the parents legal status too. Because you really can't have a minor child if there's still minor children staying in the United States without their parents. Now you could send them all back, but I'm talking about young people that have only lived in America that speak English that have gone to school here and that, that there ought to be some clear things. I, I kind of am like Newt Gingrich in a way that there, are, there is a class of people that you're going to have to look at them family by family, and you're going to have to make that decision, and that's going to cost money and time, but it's the right thing to do. Because they've lived here for 5, 10, 15, 25 years. They haven't been breaking the law while they've been been here other than crossing the border illegally. They've been paying taxes. I mean, heck, the people that go ahead and get a federal tax ID number and, and they're paying taxes, we ought to figure out how to legalize those folks. And then we need to fix the legal immigration system. And that means lowering the overall number of green cards taking that 500,000 green cards a year and clearing the backlog of green cards and getting our system caught up. I don't think that's unreasonable and I don't think that is pro-illegal immigration or pro-amnesty. I think that is living in the real world and understanding that every person cannot be categorized in a certain way. But I understand DA's commitment to this because he has... And there are many people across this country who have lost loved ones to the crimes of illegal immigrants. They should have never been here in the first place. And that is a travesty.
1: It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN.
0: Philip Magnus is joining us right now. Uh, he wrote an article uh related to this situation uh, with Dr. Anthony Fauci and smearing the reputations of scientists. And that's why I kind of started with this great announcement that's going to be coming, that I hope is going to be a great announcement, because I still love scientific uh, discovery. But in the age of Fauci, it's made it very difficult to believe everything you hear. And science shouldn't be that way. Everybody talks about what science is. Science should be proved... Testable, and all of the other things that are involved in there. Uh, Phil Magnus, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So give us just the background on what happened uh, related to the Great Barrington Declaration and what Dr. Fauci did.
3: Yeah, so the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, as your listeners probably know, uh, was uh, a result of a conference that the American Institute for Economic Research sponsored in October 2020, And basically what it was was a scientific statement making the case against lockdowns as an appropriate response to the pandemic. And it immediately gained a lot of media attention. But what we discovered about a year later through Freedom of Information Act requests uh, from the NIH is that Fauci and his then boss, Francis Collins, had basically ordered what they called, uh, quote, a devastating published takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration. He dismissed them as fringe epidemiologists attack their credibility uh, just personal ad hominem attacks rather than engaging the scientific merit. And we also found documentation that they implemented this plan. So uh, uh, within a couple hours of uh, Francis Collins sending out this directive, uh, Fauci and his team are uh, looking for news editorials and political opinion pieces to circulate around as their talking points to trash and smear the Great Barrington Declaration scientists. Uh, so here we are. A year later after that discovery, and there is a lawsuit uh, coming out of the attorney general's office in Missouri and uh, Louisiana that just succeeded about three weeks ago in getting Anthony Fauci ordered by the federal judge uh, to be deposed about his involvement in this suppression of scientific dissent. So we're on the uh, cusp of finding out more information about that, but he's already lying again in the deposition.
0: So, What you know, we thought we were rid of Dr. Fauci (laughs) and uh, because he you know, I mean, honestly, I just want to get 75 plus year olds out of our government, out of our leadership, out of I want to move on. And as a person that's 63 and approaching that age, I still see the value in getting some of these folks out. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think Dr. Fauci's a bad person. I don't think he's scientific. I think he's lost his way on what science really is. And what science really is, is where you look at different viewpoints. You look at different studies. If they're provable, then there might be different ways to approach things. And especially in the area of healthcare, one of the biggest things I think we didn't do in in the pandemic is rely on the 220,000 primary care physicians across this country that were doing things to help their patients stay out of the hospital. We didn't correlate that information. We didn't disseminate that information. We rejected it and painted all of them as being quacks.
3: That's absolutely the case. And you know, as you noted, science depends on contestable hypothesis on, on trial and error on testing. And you have someone like Fauci who comes in with the hubris of declaring, as he did multiple times, that he represents the science and any criticism of him is an attack on science. Well, that shuts down debate. And as a result, what we see is this pattern over the last two and a half years of Fauci making misstep after misstep, uh, changing his position back and forth. Uh, you know, we had conflicting evidence on masks that he put flopped on, on lockdowns, on everything in between. They botched the nursing home situation. Uh, So it's just a chain of error after error after error, and yet he's presenting himself as like this all-knowing, hubristic, scientific expert, and that anyone that would dare to question him uh, must be dismissed and attacked and discredited as fringe.
0: And, you know, have we learned anything, number one? And number two, what can we do as individuals?
3: Well, I think the main thing we've learned, and this is really an unfortunate effect of the pandemic and its handling, is that the public health uh, bureaucracy, all these public officials that claimed to be acting in our interest, have really undermined their own credibility. They've uh, hurt their own reputations and ability to uh, respond to future emergencies like this, which I think is really a a great tragedy. Fauci has set up his successors uh, basically to be in a position of failure because he's lost the public trust. And institutions like the NIH have become political rather than scientific, so they've lost the public trust. Uh, what I think we can do to rebuild some of that is we need to proceed uh, full speed ahead with investigations to get the truth out there. It's, uh, sunshine is the best disinfectant, and that's what we're starting to see with some of these things like the Missouri AG lawsuit and uh, actually getting Fauci before some of the congressional committees to testify on what he did and where he went wrong during the last two and a half years
0: we're talking to dr phil magnus uh he wrote an article uh that looked at the foia efforts which is the freedom of information act efforts that helped to spur uh this lawsuit so tell us about the lawsuit
3: yes the lawsuit uh, basically came out of the discoveries that we made in the freedom of information act uh request and this was this email that i found a year ago uh what happened is, uh, so the two attorneys general of Missouri and Louisiana, as well as a uh, private group, the New Civil Liberties Alliance, uh, filed suit against Fauci and the Biden administration, uh, to basically, uh, make determinations to do an investigation and determination of if they pressured, uh, social media companies, other public media companies, uh, uh, to suppress scientific dissent to attack uh, authors such as the Great Barrington Declaration writers. And what we're seeing right now is not only are they contradicting themselves in their deposition, uh, we're on the verge of all these uh, file releases that seem to be coming out of Twitter right now. Uh, so Jay Votachiria, one of the co-authors of the Declaration, uh, just discovered that his Twitter account had been suppressed and put on a blacklist basically from the day of its creation for political reasons. Uh, we've also found other evidence that... Uh, uh, people in Fauci's office and the Biden administration are uh, were engaged in putting pressure on certain social media companies talking to executives at Twitter to try and control information, and this seems to be a, a completely inappropriate uh, area for the government, the federal government, to be uh, – Uh, Engaged in the manipulation of speech, uh, especially through the private sector.
0: And the thing that bothers me about all of this, there are crazy things that get put out there on Twitter and Facebook and other places like that. You have to be discerning about any information that you consume. There's no doubt about that. But what they did was is they basically said, if you don't follow this line, instead of letting it do what free speech does, which means you can say anything you want, but I can challenge what you say. I I can have a debate with you about what you say. We can decide where we want to go with this by by trying to take it out of the sunlight. All they did was really do they really accomplished what they tried not to, which was kept this kind of stuff from being debated and looked at and coming up with the best alternatives. That's they they really went against what they were trying to do. They hurt more people than they helped.
3: Well, that's that's absolutely the case. And they undermined themselves and their own credibility and they still haven't realized that. They still haven't uh, uh, you know, had the, <laughs> the sense to realize that a lot of the problems they are complaining about when Fauci goes on TV and says, hey, I'm being politically attacked, well, these are self-created. He chose to go the political route, not the science route.
0: Absolutely. If people want to know more, how can they find out?
3: Yeah, so if you can go to AIER.org, that is our website, and we've published all of the images of the Freedom of the Information Act emails, uh, that we discovered related to this lawsuit and everything else. Uh, we do continuous updates on uh, this topic and numerous others. So PR.org.
0: Thank you so much for being with us today, Phil. Hope you have a great day.
3: Absolutely. You too. Thanks.
0: To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.